Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And this morning we have with us from uh, the law firm of Morgan & Morgan, Keith Mitnick. Good morning, Keith. Hey, how is how are you and how's everybody? Good, good, good. I I got to tell you something. You probably don't know this, but I have a brother, Keith. There you were. When there are not a lot of us. There's not a lot. That's right. Uh, so uh, yeah, he's my. Uh, I, I'm one of five boys, so he's uh, the next one down in age. Anyway, so Keith is a good name. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, just to kick off the uh, show, we normally ask it's latte with a lawyer. So, what's your morning beverage of choice to get started? Honestly, I used to love coffee. My my doctor told me I had to lay off the caffeine. So I, I'm usually drinking water. Not very exciting. All right. I would rather be drinking. Actually, my drink of choice is a latte with half and half. Excellent. So I, I have... will still get those, but I got to do them decaf. Okay. Why you get you, uh, what, your heart races too much with the caffeine? Yeah, yeah. I'm just... Um, I was in a car crash and actually bruised my heart. And so when I get the caffeine aggravates it and, and I get skip beats. So Ooh. if I lay off the caffeine and uh, I, I don't have any problems. So okay, okay. Yeah, listen, it happens to the best of us as we get older, you know, stuff happens. Um yes, I feel I feel the little palpitations every once in a while too. It's like, oh shoot, I better slow down the uh Listen, if I get a little caffeine on board, like I'd say decaf and they forget and give me caffeine, I know in about two sips now that I'm off caffeine, it's like rocket fuel. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. All the time and hardly noticed it. Now I damn sure notice it. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, you're you're from, I, I see your background. You are from the state of Florida and you actually have a Southern accent as opposed to me, who's from Boston and moved down here. <laughs> well, that's because I was not only born and raised here. My mother was, and her father was um, here for 90% of his life. So it's a small town north of Orlando, about an hour. And people say, you sound like from the South. I say Florida actually is the South if you're, um, you know, it's just not what we think of it anymore in Florida. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, certainly South, you know, South Florida is definitely not Southern culture. No, it is not. I, I sound as out of place down there as I do in Boston. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I grew I didn't even know I had an accent when I went away to school in Pittsburgh, and everybody said, what? You know, I said, give me a beer. I didn't even know, you know, I didn't even know I had an accent. And uh, so it's it's tempered over the years from living all these different places. But I feel like I'm back at home living in uh, Delray Beach now. There you go. New York, Boston. So uh, anyway, take us through sort of your journey here. Uh, I, I obviously, uh, you know, you've been at this a long time, and you do personal injury law. Tell me about your practice these days, and you know how you got started and to get where you are today. Well, I'll, I do all kinds of personal injury. I do the trial side. I don't work cases up anymore. I did for many, many years, but for the last twenty years or so, I'm a trial specialist. If someone else does the hard work and I get to come in and do the fun. So I try it with them. I don't take it over. I just help others try the case. So I live in a courtroom. I'm, I try 
you know, it's it's not at all unusual to have a trial every week for a month or so, and then I may go a couple weeks, sometimes three weeks without one. But you know, I'm I try a lot of cases during the year, all civil, no criminal, and <clears throat> mostly injury cases. We do some on contingency fee, uh, uh, commercial litigation, business suits. Um, but most of it is some version of an injury case, whether it's med mal, products liability, suing cigarette companies, car crashes, um, product liability, all of the above, class yeah. action. Okay. Yeah, I had a John Yanchunas on here. Sure, John and I are working on, work on some uh, of his big, mostly their, um, you know, they have to do with data, data, cases and big class actions. And I love them. I find them fascinating, something different, something very challenging. Um, so, and John is brilliant. This is spectacular lawyer in a very, very complicated area of the law. So yeah. I love working with him because he's, he can explain what I need to know like this, and then I can convert it, you know, put my, my uh, skill set on it of trying to turn it into the best story we can tell and take away the defenses as best we can as part of our presentation. Got it. Excellent. Yeah. Now he, his, his whole practice is class actions, right? Yeah. It's all class action and it's, it's all class action period, yeah. but he really developed, especially in these data breaches and other data companies and things, um, privacy and all that side. Okay. Yeah. Which is a big, was a big topic today. Everyone's oh God. To... Yeah. It's very interesting. He gets asked to go around the country. He was over in London not long ago talking to folks about, um, you know, teaching them what he's developed, what he knows. So he's well, become a, a renowned guy in that space. He's a thought leader. Yeah. Well, obviously in the UK and Europe, it, you know, GDPR is a much bigger issue than it is here in the States, but it's coming, I think. No, it's coming. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've been involved with lots of data businesses over the years, and that was always an issue. You know, the can Spam Act, all these things, you know, B2B data, everybody does it, but people want ownership of their data these days. They don't want people to have it. We didn't know what that meant five, right. ten years ago, but it is becoming a hot topic. It, you know, it's just a form of privacy. Right. Yeah, privacy. Most people treasure their rights to privacy. Yes. Even in a world where it seems like we don't have much of it left, um, and Tunis is really on the cutting edge of that last uh, holding on to the end of what's left of privacy. Yes. Well, I think we're going to see a shift there, but we'll see. What, what What's the favorite? What's your favorite type of case to work on over the year? I know you've done a lot of stuff, but what's your favorite type of case? Favorite. I just hate bullies and I love justice and I, I don't care as long as here's what matters to me. I'm not a mercenary. I am a, it, for me, it's a calling. I got to feel right. But once I feel we're on the right, then um, I love them all. You give me a, give me a courtroom and give me a righteous cause. And I'm happy. I'm on edge because injustice is gut wrenching and it's your responsibility to avoid it. And that's a heavy, heavy burden. But it's a burden I gladly take because, as my wife says, um, and I say to many lawyers, if not you, who? Um, and so it is a calling and it is a, a blessing to be able to do it. And thankfully, I'm not 
good at all that many things, but it's something I happen to have some gifts in that area. So I, w I can't pick a you, any case you give me where we're right and they're wrong and I get an opportunity to stand up to, to a bully, I'm happy. Okay. Well, I, I saw you about, you've done some pretty high profile cases here, right? Oh, I've done some really, I've done a bunch of big cigarette cases, some big defamation cases, some big entertainment with big name people in them. And those are fun. I mean, you know, there's a side of the celebrity of all that that sure. is exciting. It just, aside from the little extra jolt that gives you, um, when you step in the courtroom, it's the same process and the same stakes, and they're always high. Got it. So, I mean, listen, I've seen you at these events, TLU, and I've been to a bunch of these, and I've been in the background watching, you know, you and uh, Brian Panish and Rex Paris, et cetera. W what's your approach? What, how, how do you win? What What is your strategy, and what are the skills that you have that make you good at what you do? I, I'd say... First and foremost isn't a strategy, it's a commitment to integrity. I think jurors tend to think lawyers are going to be slippery and do sneaky stuff and can't be trusted, and that's not who I am. And I think pretty quickly um, I wear my honor on my sleeve with the jury. I admit when I've done said something or misspoken wrong, and I think fairly quickly they realize we may not always agree with this guy, but he's shooting straight with us. And so I believe that's probably my greatest asset is my commitment to shooting straight with juries all the time with no exceptions. Um, and if I feel like it's a case you can't shoot straight with them, someone else can go, I'm not. Um, so I think that's the biggest overarching asset is and it's just a belief system. Then on a more strategic level, the two things that probably are my claims to fame are getting very good system, reproducible system for establishing cause challenges during jury selection so that you get a level playing field and it's a fair fight. You're not dealing with overt bias. Mm. And the second is I have a deep-seated belief and again, develop reproducible systems. That's why, you know, people ask me to come talk to them is because they work. I call them systems that simply work that deal with this reality. Every case, no matter how right you are, there are going to be things on the other side that the defense can use to try and make it look like you may be wrong and they may be right. Right. And, um, and they're very, very good at taking those points. And I don't mean that as a criticism, you know, there are lawyers that on the other side I face that I think have no soul and no conscience. But most of them, you know, they found a way to convince themselves they're in the right. And so, okay, I look at it and say, I don't, I, I, you're not, but, you know, you're not also not being totally phony. Some are, but a lot of them believe in their cause too. Um, and I respect that, even though I may not agree with it. But at the end of the day, whatever their motivation, they're going to come at you with things that can make it look like you're wrong when in fact you're on the right side. And I, I believe you can't put your head in the sand. I believe you can't just say, here are all my good facts. Now let them tell their good facts and we'll let the jury sort it out and see whose facts are better. I, I believe that's a missed opportunity and frankly a mistake mm. because why would you score points but leave them free to score points? It's like playing no defense. Right. 
if you can stop them from scoring points while scoring your points, then your odds of winning go way up. But the hard part, that's an easy concept. The harder part is how do I deconstruct their, their best facts, their favorite facts, without sounding like I'm trying their case, without sounding like I'm making a bunch of excuses because my case has got all these holes and flaws. That's the, that's the harder part, but it can be done. It just takes some thought. And then you need these processes that kick in that can systematically work in any case by any lawyer, where you're able to take what at first appeared like one of their facts that scared you and grab it and frame it in a way and give the jury a perspective under the circumstances to where it's actually a good fact for you. And if you can't fully own it, you can at least put it in a context where the jurors can see that doesn't change even a little bit that we're on the right side in spite of that. But a lot of them you can actually commandeer and make your own. But mm. when you can't, there are ways to put them in their place. So justice isn't derailed without making excuses or sounding weak or, or, or ending up talking about the things they want to talk about, not what you want to talk about. So that's really the cause challenges, mastering the art of getting cause challenges, and mastering how to win opening statement, recognizing when you finish with your opening, they got, they're up next. And it isn't good enough to pat yourself in the back and say, look what a good opening I gave. And then afterwards, when they're done, you're grumbling about, I can't wait to prove how wrong they are. Nah, because jurors make up their minds early. And if you come out of the blocks with them getting the last word and opening and they're ahead, you're in trouble. It's unlikely you're going to catch them. So I've designed ways to make sure you won opening, meaning you're patting yourself on the back after they sit down. And mm -hmm. once you're out ahead, now it's a matter of being smart about presenting your evidence, being careful not to make mistakes, don't step in pitfalls, um, and put your best foot forward, do good cross-examinations so that they can't gain ground, because they can catch you. While it's hard for the plaintiff to catch up, it isn't hard for the defense to catch up. So you got to hold them at bay through your evidence and through cross-examination, and then get the closing argument where you have an opportunity to lay it all out and show how wrong they really are, and then to establish the dignity of damages and the rightness of, of the amount you're asking for with damage models. That's a lot to digest there and trying to simplify it a little bit. Um, so um, a couple of things that, that I heard you say is that if you get out in front, your chances of winning go up, right? If you, way up. And if you're, if you're behind, your chances of winning are maybe not non-existent, but they're slim. Okay. Um, I've heard and a the, lot. The data backs that up, by the way. The, of the jury studies back that up. So how, jurors how make you, up their mind very early. Okay. So, but how do you know when you're up? Like, how do you know your opening statement was good? I know it because when we go to lunch, um, after they're done, we're giddy. And when you didn't win, you go to lunch and everybody's grousing and grumbling and and not happy. Your gut tells you, your your mind tells you, but more than that, you know, here's how I know. Yeah. They didn't score any really meaningful points in opening that I gave them free shots at or whoever I'm with. They didn't get a free shot. We didn't forget something. Look, you you can't deal with every little nitpicking point they make. I'm talking about the difference making points. 
the right. point that you never want a jury to do this. You don't want when they get up and start talking to see a jury look over at you and go, you had me going there. Why didn't you tell me about that? And by the way, if you had an answer, you'd have given it to me. When you get that look, you're in trouble, which means it they can score. So you can't cover it all. They're going to score some points. They're good at it. Right. You can't let them score the difference making points that make you look like you weren't shooting straight or that your case is fatally flawed. So you always ask lawyers, tell me if we're going to lose this case, what's it going to be? Give me the list of what it's going to be on. I call them the defense's favorite facts. If we're, but the, to, So people that don't know, haven't worked with me know, I just say, tell me if we're going to lose, what's it going to be on? Give me a list. And then we sit down and figure out how not to let that happen. How to show we're not wrong. They're wrong. We're right in spite of their best facts. And you know why? I'm going to take their best facts and I'm going to build them into our opening. And I'm going to say to make matters worse, boom, I'll give you a quick example. Yeah. Um, you can't say, but you know what follows after, but jurors think here comes an excuse, but you can take things down, but you, it's, it's how you introduce it. It's amazing how framing and how the framework and how the perspective you present it from and the words you choose make a difference. And they're not, it's not trickery. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's just being smart. I'll yeah. give you an example. I had a partner of mine who's a fantastic trial lawyer and I've been trying cases with him forever and he knows my systems in his sleep. And he came to me on a, it was a nursing home case. And it was somebody who went to nursing home and had bad diabetes. And anyone knows that nursing home, if you got diabetes, if you're diabetic, it, it makes the person much more at risk for getting a, a bad uh, a wound, a pressure wound. Sure. And it, by the way, I don't say bed sore. Bed sore sounds like you got a little sore on your tongue. Right. Uh, wound sounds like a war injury. So we talk about pressure wounds, not pressure sores, not bed sores. But anyhow, anyone knows with uh, the pressure wounds that diabetes is, makes you very susceptible. And if you get one, it makes it very hard to fix it. Mm. So this lawyer who I have the highest of respect for his skills came to me to tell me, to impress me with how he was using, you know, he had adopted my way of thinking how he's taking it from me. And he says, well, let me tell you about this case. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with it. He says, um, my client's got diabetes, but they have the, the, the facility, the nursing home facility knew all about it. They advertised to come in and we take care of you. They took her money. They were fully aware of her diabetes and nobody on the planet knows better the risk associated with getting a, a pressure wound and treating it if you got diabetes. And somehow knowing all of that and taking her in and taking her money, they let her get one by not being careful to degree necessary under these circumstances and then didn't address it rapidly to let it get out of hand, knowing that's the worst thing you could do. Mm. And I want to sit down to hear how they're going to explain it. And he was very proud. And I was proud of him. It was great. But I said, I loved it, but, and then I didn't say anything else. And he goes, why? I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you said, but I said, well, what, why, why is, but upsetting you? He goes, Butts upset me because obviously there's you got there's something wrong with it. And I said, that's what's wrong with it. 
you everything you said was spot on except you started with she's got diabetes but now the jury's listening for the excuse you're going to give right i said he said well all right so you know mitnick you always got all these words you know you drive me crazy i said Ed, is, am i wrong <laughs> no so what would you say i said my lady's got diabetes and i said no say to make matters worse my client had diabetes and they knew. Now you say all the same. When you say to make matters worse, we just own the diabetes rather than explain why it wasn't really an excuse. We weren't making an excuse to explain why it's not a fair excuse for their conduct. We were showing it made their conduct even worse. Same fact. We just framed it differently. So yeah, that's no, a I'm a bit, I believe in framing the conversation a lot. I do that like as a salesperson. So it's interesting. So would you say most lawyers are learning this? The importance oh, of language? I can tell you what. I, look, there are a ton of lawyers out there that are intuitively, naturally do it. Yeah. Or they were trained by a great mentor and they do it. But, you know, it. I happen to have had a mentor when I was a baby lawyer who I would come in from a deposition and I would say, let me tell you what happened. Something terrible happened. Someone said, and he'd say, Mitnick, what's the matter with you? Every time something goes happens, you think it's bad. That's not bad. That's good. Let me tell you why. And I'd sit there and I was just, you know, I'm talking about straight out of law school. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking, well, that's not really good, but I was so impressed Without even if he didn't turn it into something good, he sure as hell neutralized it. And a lot of times he turned it into something good. And just out of pride, I had to adopt it, adopt it, because otherwise I was going to get balled out again for, you know, being chicken. So I would come in and say, Hey, let me tell you what happened. And it's not bad. And he would say, Mitnick, good try. I like your learning, but no, that's not why it's not bad. This is why. And, you know, when you get that early, it was just a now. I, honestly, I don't want to sound full of myself, but the guy that trained me, who I say thank you prayers for every morning, um, is long since passed away. Mm. But if if I'm at his age, I think I do what he taught me better than he did. I mean, I've just I've just taken it to rather than he just did it intuitively very very good lawyer very smart and just had great instincts i made it a science you systematized um, it yeah and i've yeah. systematized it so i can quickly teach it to others but my system works for me and so when i'm not in trial one of the things i do within our firm we call it click and pick with mitnick um, instead of having to go through a bunch of scheduling they just send an email out that i'm not in trial and they can they just go on to this site, pick whatever time works for them, click, and then they call my cell phone. Okay. And we don't even Zoom. We used to do that. It's just so quick. So I'm in every 45 minutes, I got one of these other than at lunchtime when I'm not in trial. And all we're doing is problem solving. And because I do it so much, it comes to me very naturally. But I'm hoping to pass that, like the guy that taught me, I'm hoping to pass that on across America, not just our firm, to anyone that's willing to mm. listen. Because we're all in it together. A rising tide lifts all boats. We're all fighting the same enemy, injustice. 
And this stuff is extraordinarily different. Think of the difference between trying a case where you're going, boy, I got a lot of good facts, but I got a lot of, they got a lot of good, good points to where we got a lot of good facts and they don't have any really big, good points. Um, and it's the same facts. It's just how you address them. And some facts are just bad. Your right. client's a four-time convicted felon. I'm not going to turn that into good. Right. But you know what? That doesn't mean he's not right. So you you figure out how to deal with that. You boy dire it. You make sure people don't, they only use it for believability. And then you prove them. my client has that, but everything he says makes common sense. And guess what? I'm going to present you a whole bunch of witnesses who are going to prove the same thing. And they got no felonies. So all of a sudden you, you've neutralized the bad fact, but a whole lot of bad facts are want to be bad facts. They're not really bad facts. And then occasionally there's a terrible fact. Yeah. You know, you're, caught, you're caught in a big whopper lie. And but aside from click and pick, I mean, how, I mean, how do you teach us? How do you teach us? I mean, this isn't a curriculum. When you go to law school, they're not teaching you this stuff, right? So how do you teach this uh, at scale? I've written two books that cover it from A to Z. One of them, and both of them were trial guides. One, uh, Don't Eat the Bruises, was my first one. The second one was Deeper Cuts. And it deals with all of this in a very systematized, reproducible easy to understand and apply way that goes from how the first book was a A to A to Z application to trial. The second book was new stuff. I added in some mid mouth stuff, which wasn't in the first book, but the biggest part of it was I want to share with you my process that creates my systems. And if you understand the process, number one, the systems will make more sense. But more importantly, you can expand it and create a bunch of new stuff I've never even thought of or taught on. And we can have this thing just blow up organically yeah. by sharing with you my process that is also reproducible. And then it really becomes your own and you expand this knowledge base far much further than I could. And I hope that's my legacy. I hope, you know, at the end of the day, they say, you know what? Mitnick really did help in a big way a common enemy in justice. And in in, in, while I will be on a deathbed and I'll be very pleased with my verdicts over the years, I probably will feel more fulfilled if people say he made a difference. Excellent. And the other is I do yeah. lots of you do a lot. seminars yeah. and webinars. I've got a thing called, by the way, anybody listens to this and wants to get on it. I have something called um, at home, but not alone brushstrokes. I wrote up, write up one to two page little memos of strategic gems that fit into the systems on a, on a regular basis. When I'm I, During COVID, I was doing one a week. You know, now I'm getting trial maybe one a month, but sometimes every I'll do two in a row and then be off a while. But they're really good little gems of fresh new stuff I want to get out and share. And I share it on my listserv. So if anybody wants on it, it's uh, K. Uh, um, I'm thinking of my website. <laughs> it, it is um, my listserv is it, email me. Email me at kmitnick at forthepeople.com. It's the letter K. M-I-T-N-I-K. There's no C. M-I-T-N-I-K at forthepeople.com. F-O-R thepeople.com. And just say, will you add me to your list, sir? 
if you don't mind, include my assistant, Mary Arnold. It's just M Arnold at ForThePeople.com. It just makes it easy for me to get her there. She'll put you on the list, sir. And I will send you, I think I'm up to like 58, 59 of them. Uh, she'll send you the past ones and you'll be on for all the new ones. It doesn't cost anything. It's just an outreach thing of mine that's important to me. Excellent. So let me just, just to pivot for a little bit here, because these are great um, piece of wisdom you're sharing, but how'd you get started? Like, how did you become a lawyer? Like, where'd you get started and what got you started? I, you know, I don't, I've been asked that and the I can give you my best answer, but yeah. I don't honestly have a lockdown reason. I had no lawyers in the family, had no friends of the family were lawyers, didn't know a single lawyer on earth. Uh, my only exposure to lawyers was watching Perry Mason and uh, which I think probably was an influence. I've heard that a lot. I read a book. I've heard I that read a lot. A book about a lawyer that helped some kid in, with a bully. And I think fight standing up with the bully. I hate bullies. It's always been a thing of mine. Um, and I, there was something about that book I read. It was one of the most, first serious books I read as a kid. And I think that couple with Perry Mason. Perry Mason made it look fun and interesting and cool. The book tapped into my stand-up to bullies. But my mom talked to the guidance counselor. My mom was a guidance counselor at a next-door town called Mount Dora, and I went to Eustace. And my mom talked to the guidance counselor at Mount Dora, I mean at Eustace, and she said, your son's uh, records show he said he wants to be a lawyer since elementary school. And that's weird to me because that 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 predates when I read the book was probably middle school. So I don't know where it came from. I just know I've said it until it just happened. Excellent. So what would you tell someone today was thinking about becoming a lawyer? What would your advice be? My advice would be if your heart's in it, it is a, a wonderful adventure. It's a wonderful, fulfilling way to go. I, my, I cannot imagine not having gone down this path. Now, is it an easy path? No. I tell people, other lawyers that do trial work all the time, people have no idea how hard this is. They think we just stand up and fancy words come off our tongue and we sleep in a fancy hotel out of town and drive a nice car. And they don't know the price that you pay in the time and the effort and the stress and the broken heart when things don't go right and that you carry the rest of your life. This is hard, hard stuff. But, oh my God, is it a thing of, of beauty? I mean, it's a wonderful thing to be. Think about this. How many people have someone else pick you to stand up for them when they can't stand up for themselves in a setting where they can't stand up for themselves and they pick you to stand up for them? And that's what you do for a living. Right. I mean, it, it's the ultimate honor. It's also, if you're competitive and you like a good challenge, it's very challenging. Other than professional athletes, maybe politicians, but certainly professional athletes, I can't think of any other professions where there's someone else on the other side whose sole purpose in life is to try to screw up every single thing you're trying to accomplish, and they're paid and skilled and trained to be effective at it. So that's not for everybody. It's That's a, that's a very stressful job that you don't go home at the end of the day and be done if you turn the motor off in the evening you turn the motor off when the best stuff happens in your mind so it's a deep commitment i call it a calling but oh my gosh the 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 the, the fulfillment in your heart and soul 
and the joy and the excitement and, and the energy of it, it, to me, I would say, if you're interested, be ready for the sacrifices, but be be prepared for rewards beyond your imagination. And I don't just mean financial. Right. And what, I mean, you, you, you talked a lot about sort of people just having innate skills. Like, what are the skills? Like, if you want to be a good trial lawyer, what skills do you need to have? I call it the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. You've got to have an analytical mind that can look at a problem and solve the problem, not, not run at it, not run from it. See it as a challenge to be conquered, not something to shy away from and panic about. So you got to have some, you got to have some tough skills, tough toughness to you because, because you've got a lot of, um, there are a lot of hurts and bangs and bruises along the way. So there's a toughness. There's a, a practical intelligence that requires, I'm sorry, I've got a there. Someone was calling me. I'm on silent, but it's buzzing away. There's a intelligence, but it's not be having, having a high level true intelligence is an asset, but it's not a requirement. It's, it's the high IQ dealing with problem solving, practical intelligence. And if you're, if you're able to look at, and people say, oh, my, my son loves arguing. He'll be a great lawyer. And I think mm, arguing just kind of means you're a jerk, not necessarily their child. You know, I know they what they don't mean it that way. Right. But I always, I don't like the concept of the lawyers are good at arguing. Arguing just sounds like you're an ass. Right. Um, um, it's being persuasive. But even that I, I'm not crazy about because that sounds like silver tongue devil. You can talk someone into anything, right, wrong, or indifferent. It is, it, to me, the ultimate skill set is the ability to communicate and convince people you're right when you're right, even if they may not initially understand you're right, even if there's someone else saying you're wrong. And that really takes focus, concentration, problem-solving skills, communication skills. Those are the, and just sheer grit and determination. Great determination. I like that. Well, listen, we could keep talking about this for a long time, but you know, I know you got other things to do here, so we, we can wrap it up here. Just a final word you want to leave with the audience about you, your firm, best way to connect. I, I, I'll say this. Um, I always feel like there, there's stuff I want to tell people and I never have time to tell them. And I always feel like I've shorted people. If you're interested in the books, go to trial guides. And I promise you there's stuff in there that can make a difference, whether you're a young lawyer or you've been doing it a while. There are always things in there that can be used. I take things from lawyers, young and old, all the time and implement them. And it just was um, my chance to lay out a career of living in a courtroom uh, and being a natural strategist in a way to try and help colleagues that have that are wired the same way I am that that care a whole lot about the idea of a true just result and if you go to trial guides it I feel like I, it's an opportunity for me to leave behind something that can be helpful it's not an opportunity to sell a book I don't care about so I don't heart but what I make out of the books is 
nothing. It's just, it's important to me because people passed it on to me. I feel a calling to play it forward. And that, and just lastly, to talk about your business just a little, my firm is really starting to use it. I'm learning it. I'm fascinated by it. Anything that we can do to better inform ourselves about how people react to different facts, different arguments, different positions for and against and get really sincere answers is a gigantic step in the right direction because that's at the heart of what we do. And it is very hard to get really straightforward feedback, not because people are misleading, people kid themselves. And when you can get your product gets to the root of things in a scientific way that's not determined only by what words come out of people's mouth. Um, and I think that is extraordinary and fascinating to me. And the value of it, I could see being real difference maker. So I'm exploring it because lawyers in my firm who have the utmost respect for like Nick Panagakis are true believers. And if he believes, then I believe and want to know more about it. And I'm going to find out more about it because I think there's a space for that that is not filled. And if there's a way to fill it, you've got the way to fill it. Let's fill it up. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for that. Well, listen, everybody, uh, Keith Mitnick, Morgan Morgan, a legend and uh, lots of wisdom here. I really appreciate it. And, and uh, as you mentioned, this is sponsored by Emotion Track, which is a, a legal tech platform that helps litigators prepare for mediation and trials. Thanks a ton, Keith. Really fun. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet.